Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much, Sonic Axe, for the kind invitation. And thanks, Rania, also for uh, unpacking some productive, by, uh, some productive affinities between uh, speculative imagination, speculative geography, and something that we might call speculative thinking. And that also be something that I want to talk about today, because uh, yesterday, uh, Terike, after her uh, presentation in the, in the conversation, said that our cosmologies are fucked up and perhaps this can be taken as one of the humble contributions to the way how to start thinking about the ways how to uh, co compose our cosmologies otherwise. So what I'm gonna do today is uh, I'm gonna make a sort of teaser lecture. It will be perhaps 40 minutes after that, I'll be looking forward to hear your questions. And uh, the book, as already said, was released last December by Stroel Capres. And I'm gonna, kind of jump right into some of the philosophical considerations in the book. Uh, perhaps, you know, Bruno Latour, a few years ago, he released a short manifesto. The name of the manifesto is Down to Earth. And in this manifesto, he made abundant, abundantly clear that today, uh, climate crisis is not a political problem, but properly speaking, it is a geopolitical affair because uh, it uh, transcends nation-state boundaries, both in its causes and it is in its effects. So, as we have, there is a problem that we have repeatedly seen since Rio 1992, the first climate conference, and even despite Paris 2015, all these attempts to coordinate climate emergency mitigation do not reach any satisfactory results. Uh, and also the most recent conferences, for example, in Katowice in 2018, or Climate Action Summit in New York last September, or the most recent conference in Madrid, all of these conferences only underscore this sad tendency. And to better illustrate these geopolitical failures, we might observe an alarming trend of climate injustice as a result of this geopolitical climate appeasement, because it is countries of Oceania, of Africa, of Southeast Asia or of Latin America that are the first frontal line of climate emergency. While, while Western countries, as well as India or China, are hesitant to take lead in global action against runaway global heating. And seeing this space of geopolitical climate failures, it might be time to reconsider whether the geopolitical dimension of the climate crisis should not be rendered anew. This can mean, uh, among other things, to reassess the role of nation states as sovereign actors of ecological geopolitics, given that the hollowing out of the functions of the nation states over the past 40 years of their wild neoliberalization has led to a situation in which they lack the instruments for planetary coordination. So how should the climate crisis be perceived outside of the geopolitical space of nation states? One of the alternative geopolitical spaces is the infrastructure space. Since any kind of truly planet planetary coordination and any kind of collective orchestration of human and non-human actors requires an infrastructural power. Why? Because infrastructures, those are those armatures that are capable to facilitate and standardize regimes of tendencies between bodies in space. And there are many examples of such infrastructures, postal address systems, languages and scripts, railways, transoceanic cables, calendars, time zones, 
international business standards, sewage systems, broadband and water pipes, websites, cloud platforms, or most recently also distributed ledgers. And to mobilize this kind of infrastructural power in relation to climate emergency mitigation, we need, however, to understand first anew what is the geo in geopolitical. That means, at the first place, to abandon so-called Westphalian conditions that give rise to the situation of globalization. Under these conditions, nation states are treated as subjects of global action while they are actually losing the capacity to control global affairs. And infrastructures, they are seen as shady mechanisms in the cosmic background of geopolitics. So we need sort of to flip the figure and the background and recognize infrastructures as one of the major planetary agencies we have at our disposal, since they can intervene where nation states alone fail. But before doing so, we must make clear what actually is that object we aim to save from runaway climate catastrophe. That is, what do we talk about when we talk about the planet? That is the business of comparative planetology as a philosophical genre. Kim Stanley Robinson, an American sci-fi author and writer, characterized comparative planetology as a science that compares different celestial bodies in terms of the composition of their atmosphere or soil, or in terms of their geological and geophysical processes, and so on. And in my account, comparative planetology becomes a philosophical genre, not an exact empirical science that will be the part of the astronomy, which is actually the case. Comparative planetology exists as an actual science, as an actual part of astronomy and geophysics. And so in my account, when, where comparative paleontology is a philosophical genre, rather, it's uh, this kind of study uh, studies different visual and different philosophical cultures of imagining our planet, the Earth. What is important, comparative paleontology maps these cultures and imaginations into a geopolitical realm, because different imaginations of the planet reflect different geopolitical arrangements. And these geopolitical spaces are then crucially translated into different geophysical and biochemical realities on the planetary scale. Take a following example. When the EU, at the beginning of September 2019, considered declaring a potential no-deal Brexit a major natural disaster, it made, perhaps unwittingly, a gesture towards understanding this translation of geopolitics into geochemistry and also vice versa. To explain, the socio-economic consequences of Britain leaving the EU are also kind of a planetary chemical event, just as the trade war between China and the US was the case, or a potential conflict in the Middle East. Because in all these cases, the slowdown of international trade affected by such events can be mapped into relative fluctuations in CO2 emissions or in resource extraction. Another example comes from a recent rebranding of fossil fuels as molecules of freedom by US Department of Energy in May 2019. And this example unveils the link between politics and chemistry in how certain chemical elements can be mapped or can become an index of a certain political value. 
The spreading of a certain concept of freedom, for example, free market fundamentalism, as in the case of the US, then also equals to spreading of certain chemical elements, for example, carbohydrates. And so comparative planetology allows us to ask questions such as, for what earth do we design? Or what geopolitical tendencies does our imagination, imagination of earth actually endorse? By doing so, comparative planetology contributes to an emergence of a solid theoretical conceptualization of the planet in contemporary thinking about politics, media, design, and architecture. Because we increasingly refer to terms like planetary entanglements, planetary conditions, the planetary ecosystem, planetary megacities, planetary scale computation, and so on. But uh, closely scrutinized, we discover how these uh, different rhetorical gestures might in some cases turn out to be vacuous, especially once they turn into a sort of common currency in our intellectual cultures. And here, it is the task of philosophy to elaborate on the conceptual underpinnings of this emerging discourse. However, why turn the question of what the planet means today into a philosophical problem? Well, uh, there are two ways that I can answer this question. And the first one is based on an observation uh, by Czech philosopher, probably the most famous Czech philosopher, Jan Patočka. He claimed that the problem of philosophy is the world as a wall. And it is exactly this thinking about the world as a wall that in the situation of climate emergency becomes an inquiry into the conditions of our planetary existence. This means that today, the world as a wall is the planet. And the second justification of philosophy as a geopolitical tool comes from Carl Schmitt. Schmidt claimed that geopolitics is possible only after the figure of the earth as a wall becomes the locus of legal spatial ordering. Thus, one can claim that geopolitics is always in need of the figure of the wall or in need of some planetary imagination. And philosophy as a discipline has the means to deliver this kind of imagination. That brings me to the clarification of what comparative planetology actually compares. Different visual and different philosophical imaginations of the planet are in comparative planetology clustered into coherent figures. These figures are five. The planetary, the globe, the terrestrial, Earth without us, and spectral Earth. Each of them represents a coherent cosmogram, if I may to refer also to the practice of design Earth, and if you will, uh, they kind of present something like a design brief, each of them, also a geopolitical regime, and also a prospect of a certain visual paradigm. And in the rest of this teaser lecture, I will actually clarify these figures one after another, and I will highlight one or two key elements or one or two key thoughts from each of these figures in order to understand these different genres of planetary imagination. So to start, the central figure of comparative planetology is that of the planetary. It is an imagination of the Earth as an impersonal and geophysical process in which humans play the role of temporary mediators. 
This figure of the planet emerges from our confrontation with the visuality of climate emergency. Planetary flows and planetary forces, uh, they visually inscribe themselves into the surface and the atmosphere of the planet. And they inscribe into the surface and into the atmosphere also the violence done to the planet in this way. And this is also the main topic of a short piece I've written for the Sonic Axe reader. And you can read there about the specific mode of visuality revealed in so-called planetary diagrams. That is a sort of non-human geoglyphs, if you will. But it is not just about reading inscriptions on the Earth substrate of our planet, but also about listening to biological species uh, as environmental proxies, as Anya wonderfully demonstrated yesterday. However, now let me focus on the planetary as a philosophical concept. Uh, at, uh, uh, it can be uh, roughly approached by two different perspectives, two different avenues. And the first one is Earth system perspective, and the second is uh, critical subjective perspective on the planetary. So what is Earth system perspective first? This perspective looks at the planet as a process where inorganic objects, biological species, as well as geographical territories are treated equally as media for torrential forces packing and unpacking themselves at various scales. As William Connolly remarks in relation to the human position in this cascade of complex planetary processes, which many times involve very queer trophic, trophic cascades, as we know thanks to the work of researcher uh, Ellen Gale, who will also speak today, we are, according to Connolly, inhabited by forces of the world, or perhaps even better, occupied by the forces of the world, rather than being its primary subjects and masters. As humans, we are delicate and ephemeral assemblages, just as the Earth itself, seen from the vantage point of cosmic history. And this understanding of the human as a temporary medium brings me to the second critical subjective perspective on the planetary. This perspective is best represented by Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak. In her reading, the planetary brings gestures of disenchantment and the defamiliarization of the home. While William Connolly talks about humanity inhabited or occupied by forces of the world, Spivak thinks about the planetary as an alterity, as something genuinely outside of the human. As Spivak says herself, if we imagine ourselves as planetary accidents rather than global agents, planetary creatures rather than global entities, alterity remains something underived from us. It is not our dialectical negation. It contains us as much as it flings us away. And one can spot here the existence of alterity as something that I tend to call exteriority. And this idea of exteriority is crucial to understanding the argument of the comparative planetology, because this alterity slash exteriority manifests itself as a procedure of the unfolding of many, many path dependencies that were here before humans and that can very well continue after the end of the species. And with this idea of the planetarity, of the planetary as a form of exteriority, 
with this idea in mind, let's explore now the second, fi the second figure of comparative planetology, which is the figure of the globe. The globe, the globe is defined as a juxtaposition to the planetary. It provides a conceptual genealogy of Westphalian geopolitics of nation states and presents a provisional history of many Western misconceptions about the planet driven by the colonial expansion of European countries from early modernity onwards. Hence, it is no surprise that the history of the globe is associated with the darker side of Western modernity, as Walter Mignolo would say, which is coloniality. And the first key trait of the figure of the globe is the imagination of the world as a smooth, divisible, frictionless terrain. Its birth, can be associated with early cartographical gestures of modernity. One of them was this intervention by the Pope Alexander VI in 1493, who as a speaker on behalf of an almighty observer of the world from above, that is the God, the, uh, the Pope resolved territorial disputes between Portugal and Spain as two early colonial powers by drawing an artificial line on the surface of the earth. And the planet, by this gesture, was divided into two hemispheres, one belonging to Portugal and one belonging to Spain, totally artificially. And what begins with the gesture of one pope ends with global logistical networks. The construction of the omnidirectional smooth this omnidirectional smooth sphere or smooth space, if you will, is closely associated with sea transport and the open seascape becomes that very spatial template of logistical, logistical modernity. And the container, that becomes the tool of the spatial abstraction, a geometrical metaphor for standardization of the commodity flows. Together with the emergence of smooth space, the second constitutive moment of the globe is the imagination of the world as an interior, as observed, for example, by Peter Sloterdijk. It can be well illustrated on many architectural and popular fascinations with spheres, or in Adam Smith's parables about the free market as a giant sheltered marketplace. This idea of Weltinnenraum, or world interior, secures also space for cosmopolitanism and for interiorization of nature and culture. And so in relation to climate emergency, Sloterdijk shows how the metaphor of the world as an interior finds its ultimate realization in the overheated hothouse of modernity. For this reason, modernity appears to be a great march, a great march of interiorization that consumes planetary reality in human affairs. And hence, while the planetary stands for the figure of exteriority and alterity, the globe is a colonial imagination of the world as a unified, homogeneous wall, and that means that the globe is the figure of interiority. And this dichotomy between interiority and exteriority, that is between the globe and the planetary, is then invaded by the third figure of comparative planetology that attempts to bring solutions to the integral failures of the globe, and that's the figure of the terrestrial. Since the end of the Cold War, 
the universalist ideas carried by the figure of the globe have been substantially questioned by many political approaches. And those older than me surely remember anti-globalist protests culminating at the turn of the millennium with the battle for Seattle or marches against the meeting of the International Monetary Fund in Prague. And since then, the anti-globalist agenda has run out of the steam on the popular left and it has become the banner of post-fascism and the far right. These tendencies significantly decrease any prospects of planetary coordination since they complicate political geography by preferring fragmentation over integration and cooperation. There are of course also progressive responses to the globe that can be framed as responses fitting under the figure of the terrestrial. One of them is of course uh, the proposal by Bruno Latour, but for the sake of the brevity, I will focus only on the far right here now. And the perfect example of an appeal to geopolitical multipolarization is Alexander Dugin and his right-wing interpretation of Russian Eurasianism. The Atlantic model of the globe, which is in his words, the model of novel empire, or if you will, the model of the eternal Carthage, is juxtaposed in Dugin's thinking by the Eurasian model, the model of the eternal Rome, the empire of land grounded in local blood and soil. What is important in Dugin's theory, despite his repudiating political commitments and very shallow eclecticism, is how his critique of the globe can be sort of aligned with those critiques that can be found in Sloterdijk or even in Latour. My suggestion here is that both the relocalizing tendencies and late modernist resuscitations of the globalism are actually different versions of the same appeal to the space of interiority, as you can see on this diagram. That is, the space that can be intimately familiar, that we can be intimately familiar with, this interior, something which is intimate, something which is familiar, and that can be also unified or divided without any friction. An interiority as a space of nations, our cultures and cultures, if you will. And the only exception from this appeal to interiority, thanks to the way how she treats exteriority and alterity, is Gayatri Spivak. Now, what I am really interested in is how to build geopolitics around the principle of exteriority and alterity. That is around something we cannot be intimately familiar with. Because it is interiority which leads to the possibility of segmentation and mastery over territories and thus ultimately also to the impasse of the duality between the global and the local. And also to the pathologies that are related to both of these dual categories. Exteriority in this way raises unsurpassable obstacles to this kind of attitude towards the world we inhabit, towards the world as something which can be frictionlessly easily segmented. And this is why I so much appreciate Terike's yesterday call that the world of climate justice must be a world without cages. Because the cage, that's another integral instrument of interiorization of the planet, together with the container, with the crystal palace, with the prison, and so on. The question now stands, what kind of planetary imagination can reverse 
all these interior interiorizing tendencies of modernity or that or what or these tendencies that result either in colonial globality or in fragmented terrestriality can the principle of exteriority bring a promise of some kind of non-modern geopolitics well my suggestion is to begin this exploration with some new figures of the planet new figures of the comparative planetology and in the book i propose two such figures the first of them instructs us to think about the planet as existing always and fundamentally without us that is the figure of the earth without us this figure earth without us is a figure of radically indifferent earth a kind of monster earth which is best described by Gayatri Spivak when she claims that the planet gives a damn it is in the rules of the galaxy and the planetary system and we cannot touch it the earth without us is thus some kind of dark creative but non-organic and inhuman earth we humans we are just temporary symptoms of its deep geological and evolutionary processes and in this sense earth without us is a kind of radical conclusion of the figure of the planetary that we have encountered earlier and if there is one distinguishing trait of the earth without us it is its deep complicity with something we can call geological time it is the time of tectonic plates movement the time of geological sedimentation the time of the weathering of mountains or the time in which our climate changes geological time consists in the two elementary moments ancestrality and posteriority and i will now explain both of these temporal moments of geological time consider a following statement for a beginning that trilobites were species of marine organisms that disappeared 252 million years ago this statement it talks about realities preceding the emergence of humans and it is a french philosopher cantan meazou which calls these statements ancestral what is important about ancestrality is that it precedes properly speaking not just an emergence of humans but an emergence of thinking itself and thus ancestral realities are anterior to their givenness to the humans or in other words they are fundamentally misaligned with human thinking a similar statement seems to be also the following one in 5 billion years the sun will turn into a red giant and it will consume the planet earth this statement provides us a knowledge of a time after our own extinction ie after the end of thinking and this statement does reveals the mirror concept of ancestrality which is the posteriority posteriority it can be traced back to jean-francois lyotard's notes on solar death rehearsed also by some contemporary thinkers such as ray brassier and hence we can have a knowledge of events preceding the emergence of humans and we can also think about those events that will come after our extinction and with these notes about extinction let me unpack the last figure of comparative planetology which is spectral earth this figure of the planet represents a shadow realm populated by the spectres of extinct species 
Spectral Earth is neither a world to win nor to save. It is a world to be mourned. Environmental mourning as a cultural technique and as a collective practice is tied to the truth of the sixth mass extinction and not only to it. Because as natural sciences tell us, every non-biological species comes with an expiration date. Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens in this sense is no in exception as well. And the problem is thus not so much whether we will become extinct, but how we will cope with the truth of that extinction, and also subsequently how we will design for our extinction. Some authors believe that we are already living our own extinction. One of them is Spanish philosopher Marina Garcés. Rather than speaking about the post-human, she prefers to talk about a post-humus condition, conditio post-huma. A post-humus situation is the one that we might very well live in already now, and it can be assessed by some people as a reason for pessimism and for defeatism. Yet it would be misleading to adopt this kind of approach, since there is no reason to associate human centrality in and human importance also in the planetary assemblage with hope and optimism, or the decentering of the human with nostalgia, melancholy, and defeat. On contrary, conditio posthuma carries the possibility of living with the truth of extinction, that is living with the spectre of the future death of the species. And spectral Earth thus allows us to see ourselves as ephemeral elements of planetary metabolism, arriving at a variation of what, is, of what is by some thinkers called today as an outside view on ourselves. This outside view on ourselves is central to the geopolitics of 21st century. It brings a moment of productive alienation, an alienation when we see our own image but we cannot recognize ourselves in it. Or as Holly Herndon says, we are completely outside ourselves and the world is completely inside us. So instead of governing the landscape, we arrive at the possibility of becoming a kind of landscape. And here one can refer, for example, to recent essays by a writer Elvia Wilk. Camouflage, together with dislocation and decentralization, rather than hypervisibility, might be a better guiding principle in this pursuit. After all, the picture of spectral Earth is not that different from Dark Forest of Liu Qixin's novels, which is a place where it is better not to, not to let others know about your existence too much, since it may cost you a mass extinction event. So we need less geoengineering and more geopoetics. How? The leading principle here is the understanding of our planet as an exteriority or alterity, as already mentioned before. And we can draw here from a literary parable. Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian from 1985 depicts the monstrous wilderness of the so southwestern United States together with its dismal, um, dismal inhabitants in the middle of 19th century. The main anti-hero of the novel, his name is Judge Holden, and one of, in one of his long monologues, he captures 
the intractable and contingent reality of both the Earth without us and spectral Earth. As he claims, the truth about the world is that anything is possible. Had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled it of its strangeness, it would appear to you for what it is. A hat-trick in a medicine show, a fever dream, a trance be populate with chimeras having neither analogue nor precedent, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show, whose ultimate destination after many a pitch in many a mudded field is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. The universe is no narrow thing, and the order within it is not constrained by any latitude in its conception to repeat what exists in one part in any other part. Even in this world, more things exist without our knowledge than with it, and the order in creation which you see is that which you have put there, like a string in a maze, so that you shall not lose your way. For existence has its own order, and that no man's mind can compass, the mind itself being but a fact among others. And that brings me to my conclusion today. Let me return to the claim that comparative planetology allows us to ask questions such as, for what earth do we design? And in this respect, design becomes a geopolitical tool and it matters really a lot whether we design for another smooth sphere of the globe or whether we design for a fragmented localist planet of the terrestrial or whether we design from the vantage point of the planetary towards an unknown earth without us with the haunting spectral earth always in mind. Now, it might be a good time to come back to the notion of infrastructural geopolitics of climate emergency. The geopolitical argument of comparative planetology in this sense can be labeled as anarchist to the extent to which it brackets off state sovereignty. Is that the planet itself doing something outside? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talking about infrastructural space, we should always be prepared to tackle the question that necessarily arises once we exempt nation states from geopolitical affairs. The question is, since nation states are still understood as typical spaces of democracy, are we not running towards some sort of an auto authoritarian means of climate emergency mitigation? The answer is no, since states are a historically contingent form of a democratic community. The ancient Greek police was the political community assembled within one city. The Roman political community was defined by belonging to an empire. The Pachamama of the Quechua people brings all species and all non-humans into such a community. So with respect to climate emergency geopolitics, the figures of the planetary, of the Earth without us, or of the spectral Earth, these figures allow comparative planetology to read the planet itself as a sort of infrastructural space. And thus, while states are communities of human subjects, at least in theory, there is no humanity presumed in the political community induced by infrastructural space. In this respect, we can also think about technical species that can decide with us and on our behalf. The coordination of climate emergency mitigation 
asks for the mixing in uneven proportions different modalities of intelligence. For example, human-made artificial intelligence can tap to some extent into planetary ecosystem intelligence in order to contribute to non-state governance of interventions against the runaway climate crisis. As a computational technology, artificial intelligence becomes environmental, as Jennifer Gabriel says. For this reason, it also becomes infrastructural, and thus it functions as a geopolitical and geochemical technology. In other words, our understanding of genres of intelligence might inform our co-curating of the planetary destiny. And to read geopolitics infrastructurally also leads to an urgency to abandon old infrastructures and simultaneously to build new ones out of the debris of the old. This could mean mobilizing design and mobilizing architecture as practices of deleting and deconstructing. Activist actions such as Germans and the Gelendes, many successful attempts to block coal mines and power plants provide a viable template to follow here. It is no coincidence that these old fossil fuel infrastructures are often managed as state or semi-state enterprises. And for this reason, revolting against climate emergency or revolting against the climate crisis may involve a revolt against nation states as obstacles to the end of the climate crisis. Perhaps the nation state swan song lies in pulling the triggers of its creative self-destruction, resulting in infrastructural sovereignty and stateless democracy taking the lead in governance of those planetary affairs that we will be probably dealing with in the centuries to come. The preference of geopolitical space of infrastructure instead of a geopolitical space of nation states then becomes obvious also in an example I would like to conclude this talk with. Cities. Cities are landscapes and infrastructural spaces too. They are also potential geopolitical actors because they are giant metabolic chains, machines that direct our behavior and thinking. In other words, they are massive ecologies of things and bodies. And this understanding erases the distinction between the city and the forest, rendering the city a continuation of the forest by other means. As recently implied by researcher Paulo Tavares, together with forensic architecture. We have always been constructing nature in this way, and nature has been constructing us. The city is just an intermediary form of this general transformative feedback loop. Thus the city's current dense form, highly distinguished from the surrounding landscape, does not have to be its future mode of existence. Instead, let us think about cities as landscapes, and let us learn to understand municipal politics as the practice of co-curating of planetary flows and ecologies. That is a practice which always exists in a larger geopolitical framing. The local is not an opposite of the global. The local is just a clumsy term to express how our immediate surroundings can be treated as an index of the metabolic fluxes and metabolic processes of the planetary. And that's all from my side. Thanks for your attention.